Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm joined today by Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. This week, we are continuing our walk through the book of James, and today we are discussing James chapter 3. Let us begin this week by hearing a few verses of James 3. This is 1 through 5. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So James has explained to his readers that Jesus will judge them by their works, as we saw last week in chapter 2. He will save them not by some kind of bare faith or a mere verbal profession of faith. And now he comes to what can be seen as one of the main points of his letter, the power of speech in the community or in the body. Um, It's helpful to remember the full context here, that the quality of speech is part of their growth and maturity in Christ, and is also uh, part an essential part of their call to persevere in the midst of their trials that they are going through. And Jeff, you helpfully point out that this section is the very center of the book of James, and that uh, if this book is a chiasm, everything moves to this section and from this section of the book. So I guess before we jump into verse one, why does James place so much emphasis on the tongue here in the middle of his book? Well, my answer to that would be that uh, it's the tongue of these brothers. It's the speech of these brothers. It's uh, causing the body, that is the community. They're leading them into very unwise, and as we're going to see at the end of chapter three, uh, virtually demonic activity. Um, So the tongue of a leader, of a brother, of a teacher, verse 1, has enormous power over the community, um, over the whole body of the church. I think it's important to note in verse 2 that uh, this mature man um, who's not stumbling is able to bridle. In the ESV, there is the uh, his whole body, the, the pronoun his, but it's really the whole body, and I'm, I'm convinced that it's, mm. this is about leaders and the way they control the body, the, um, uh, the community. Same thing with the ship. Uh, communities are often uh, characterized as ships, and here the ship is guided by a small rudder, and that's the tongue. So just um, that, I think, sets that I think in context of James, that um, perspective helps you understand why um, it's, this is such a big deal. It's not just that, you know, as individuals, and this is true, our speech uh, affects the way we live, but it's especially true that in communities, whether it's a marriage Mm. or a school or uh, a city or a church, um, it's, it's the words of leaders that precipitate uh, a, a, a way of living, a way of, of dealing with issues, a way of responding to 
trouble. And of course, here you've got persecution, you got violence, you got oppression mm-hmm. against this community. And uh, apparently what's happening here is the, the leadership is encouraging the wrong kinds of, of behavior, of response. Uh, and they're doing this through their angry speeches, through their, um, uh, yeah, through their violent, uh, their calls for violence, if you will. It's important to bear in mind just how important the tongue and speech are in, in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Throughout Proverbs, especially, again and again, things are traced back to the tongue and through the tongue to the heart. The heart is that which weighs and gives birth to words that come through the lips. And the distinction between the fool and the wise is seen chiefly on the lips. And those lips are um, able to reveal the heart of a person. They're able to determine um, the way that things will go. The person who's able to give a word in season is able to affect a situation for good. The person who does not know when to speak and how to speak is really powerless. He does not have the same effectiveness. Or he can have an incredible power to cause harm. And so James's emphasis upon the tongue is very much within that tradition. And it's also highlighting where exactly the problem um, has its greatest force. This is the concentrated heart of where things go wrong within the community. It's angry words, it's careless words, it's rash speech. And from that, all these other things arise. And this isn't something new within the book of James. He's already been building up to this in places like chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. His encouragement to be quick to hear and slow to speak and the danger of the anger of man. And then in verse 26 of that chapter, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That imagery of bridling the tongue is also encountered in this chapter which suggests that this is a deeper theme within the book that comes to its climax and its full presentation within this chapter, as Jeff has suggested. That, that connection with the wisdom literature, I think, is important. James is often understood, I think rightly, uh, to have a good deal of uh, uh, grounding in wisdom literature, the Hebrew scriptures. And there's this connection between words and ruling. Um, and so these people are anxious for justice, for righteousness, for God to, to make things right. Back in chapter one, the anger of man does not uh, make things right as God intends to make things right. Um, and we're going to end this chapter also with this uh, hope, this uh this this promise of a, a harvest of justice, a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. Um, this biblical connection between words and ruling, I think is really important. It goes all the way back to uh, God's ruling over the word, world by speaking in Genesis 1. Uh, Adam, uh, the pinnacle of God's word creation, rules in God's image by speaking the names of each animal. Uh, and it's also... Adam's failure to speak in chapter three of Genesis at, in the garden at, at the time of the temptation, which um, gets him into trouble. Uh, so this, there, with and, and of course, if you come to the kings, uh, David is a 
uh, is a the paradigm of wise ruling, and so is Solomon. And what do they do? Solomon writes all sorts of of proverbs, some of which we have, some of which we don't. Uh, David writes uh, and puts words into the mouths of uh, his subjects, his people, through psalms, uh, especially through psalms. Um, so, uh, and in the life of Jesus, uh, Jesus' ministry is spent speaking, speaking to disciples, speaking to people of Israel, um, and his speaking brings about a new order, a new world. Um, people are astonished at his teaching. So, so speech uh, is something, I, I get this, it, this maybe helps, this maybe helps. I get this all the time in my counseling with marriages, I, mm. I, I find out that uh, <clears throat> that guys and girls don't recognize the power of what they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the words wor- at the center of any covenant are words, not just physical contact, not just sexual intimacy in marriage, but words. Words begin the marriage covenant with promises and vows. Words maintain that that marriage covenant. And if you if you use the wrong kind of words in your marriage, uh, for example, if you're a man and and uh, you, you say, you know, hurtful, harmful things to your wife, or you talk about wanting to divorce her, man, those words can destroy a covenantal relationship. Mm. Um, and there, there is no personal relationships between people except through words. Uh, and, and yet people use them carelessly, foolishly, say things that they shouldn't say, not realizing the effect it's going to have on the relationship. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to say, I mean, it's fascinating to see, you can almost look at this passage and see that the pastor or the leader is uh, the tongue or the mouth of the body. I don't know that I have considered that before. Uh looking at your commentary and looking at this passage today, but it says right there at the beginning, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for we know that those who will teach will be judged with greater strictness. And then he uses again, those analogies of the ships, which are full of people and are guided by a pilot on the rudder. Yeah. And, and as you said, God creates things and he brings new life in by his word. He Christ heals by his word. And then in sin, we see that man sets things on fire by his word. Um, so God heals by speech while man's speech is full of poison. Uh, looking there at verse one, James mentions that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Is this, uh, you think, referring back to thematically what was going on in chapter two and the justification of works? Um, could be. Um, perhaps uh, he anticipated that some of his readers would commit the error of believing that because of his arguments in chapter two, the end of chapter two, uh, it's simply actions that matter and not words. Um, so James maybe calls them back and recognizes, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not dissing the importance of words, not at all. Um, but yeah, and words are more than just tools to move and inspire other people. Uh, they, they, they have a power of their own. That's important to consider that Jesus' principle in Matthew 7, verse 2, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. 
and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, particularly applies to teachers because they are the ones providing the measure. They are the ones giving the judgments that inform other people. And so if they are hypocritical, and I think we can see this where leaders are hypocritical, where they are not um, upholding the truth in their own lives, their whole speech is compromised and the truths that they declare are called into question. And so that judgment with greater strictness is very much in keeping with that principle that Christ declares. And we can also see the judgment with greater strictness is something that is naturally following from um, the dangers of hypocrisy, the ways in which teachers and their practice really go together. If, if you're teaching and you're not practicing, then it really leads to a tension that is felt by those who listen. Looking at some proverbs that revolve around speech, I find it helpful to um, apply them to a pastor in the body. So obviously the immediate application is to us and how we speak, but then to apply it to um, the pastor or leaders of the church and the body of uh, the local congregation, I think is useful. So, you know, uh, Proverbs 10, when words are many transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Um, Proverbs 15, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And then, Proverbs 21, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And um, it's, it takes wisdom, I think, on the on behalf of pastors to live these Proverbs and live out James 3 well, because ministry is full, absolutely full of speech. You're speaking in counseling, you're speaking in preaching, you're speaking in evangelism, you're speaking in prayers, you're speaking uh, all the time. And yet, uh, even with all of that speaking, there is a type of incessant, never-ending speech, which can lead to transgression, or there's a type of incessant, never-ending speech that can lend itself to not having a gentle tongue or not keeping your mouth and your tongue, and then thus leading yourself and the church into trouble and difficulty unnecessarily. Yeah, th this should be somewhat unnerving for um, pastors and Christian teachers, uh, this being judged with greater strictness should cause us a little bit of fear. Um, Matthew 12, Jesus talks about on the day of judgment, people giving account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. Similar thing is said in Luke 12, uh, what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops, things like that. Again, this is connected with wisdom. Remember back in Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, uh, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So uh, the question is, do we really have a fear as pastors, as teachers, as theologians, that all of our words will be brought into judgment. And, and what should that mean? Maybe we don't talk as much. <laughs> uh, I mean, you just mentioned, Brian, you're right. Uh, the pastor's job is all about talking, talk, talk, talk. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of funny when I make a, some stupid mistake, grammatical mistake or something in the pulpit, I, I will say, oh, my goodness, my job is, is talking. I mean, I'm paid to talk and I can't talk. Um, that, th th those are funny kind of 
times, but, but um, sometimes we talk too much. And I wonder also if this has, surely it does, an application to social media. Of course. Where you just kind of, whatever's on your mind, you speak. Of course, there's some kind of a, um, a weird thing there too. When you're, when you're sitting across from someone or where you, when you're standing at a lectern or a pulpit and you're looking at people in the face, uh, your speech is going to be constrained in a certain way that it's not when you're just looking at a screen. Um, and you're, there's nobody really there. You mm-hmm. might imagine the other people that are reading what you're about to put on Twitter or something. And you should do that, of course. Mm-hmm. But it's not exactly the same thing. And we're and we're very we're liable to say things uh, that we would never say uh, when we're in when doing in person communication. Um, so, you know, we really need to teachers really need to think carefully about judgment day. And I, I admit that's something I, I don't always do. Yeah. How many times have we heard, you know, this person is like this online, but in face-to-face conversation, they're nothing like their online persona. I know Alistair has talked about that a lot. He indeed talked about that in our recent video series on social media and, and speech and being part of a community. I found that stuff really helpful. So folks can check out that series on our YouTube channel if they're interested. I think Paul's counsel to watch your life and your doctrine closely is an important instruction for the the teacher, because I think you can think about this in the context of families as well. Parents, their role to their kids is very often communicated less by speech than by presence. Um, Just being present among their kids as examples, as those who represent security and safety and um, principle, um, they give the sort of moral coordinates of their lives, even without speaking, and often depending a lot upon speaking, can result from the inability of our inability to be present to each other or a presence that is just ineffective. You can think about the ways that when people lose moral authority, they can often fall back onto other sorts of things. Think about Saul and the way that he became a tyrant. The more that he lost moral authority, people just followed him, the more that he had to resort to tyranny and violence to get people to do his will. And in the same way, I think we're in danger of depending over much on words because we've lost the ability to exert moral authority by our presence. And part of that is just simply we do not have presence to each other because we're distant, distant physically. And so the sorts of authority that could be exerted in other situations are not open to us. And maybe we need to restore those forms of authority before pending over much upon words. I think, again, about the example of Paul, where he's writing letters and people hear the letters as having a particular force and they know that when he's physically present with them, his presence has a different tenor to it. And there's something about that interplay between physical presence and the letter that is important and it relates to the way that Christ's presence to us is mostly by his written word, not by his physical presence. But we know that we are expecting his physical presence to come. And when we think about that, I think we can maybe reflect upon the ways in which our words and our spiritual and our physical presence can be related to each other in helpful or less than helpful ways, because there is a difference between those two things. 
that maybe we don't consider enough. Yeah, Elster, even that written word that we're given is meant to be spoken, and it's meant to be spoken by people to other people. It's meant to be heard. It's meant to be embodied and not just words on a page. And uh, so I think that helps also to remind us that uh, disembodied speech, and I, I say this to my seminary interns for years and years. I mean, books are great, but the life of the church is not reading, it's speaking and hearing, it's interacting with one another, whether in worship or in other contexts. Perhaps I should say something about end of verse two, mm. uh, the mature man uh, able to bridle the whole body. I, I mentioned, I think that's the community. There are some commentators who don't buy that. And lot, and sometimes the argument is, well, this is too Pauline. Um, and there's, uh, and if this letter is earlier than Paul, then uh, James wouldn't know about this Pauline theology of the head and the body. Um, but I, I, I would suggest that that's, James is not using uh, the body in the same way that Paul does in terms of head and body. He's just a common way of thinking about a community of people being a body. Uh, look also at verse six, the tongue is a world of unrighteousness, a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Set, it is set among our members staining the whole body again you could maybe this is ambiguous maybe it's also about the members of our individual body and that certainly in some sense can be argued and commentators have argued that uh and yet maybe it's also uh both uh about our bodies and about the members of the body of christ the members of the community and the way in which the tongue is able to direct a community uh, one way or the other. Uh, so the speech of the brothers has this enormous impact, uh, like fire, uh, and especially when the tongue is engaged in, in unjust, unrighteous speech. In verse 5, he says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And that, again, can be a, a a picture of the church. Uh, those who belong to God are to be oaks of righteousness and a great forest, a community of people, many trees put together can be uh, burned down and destroyed by a small fire that starts with the tongue, whether that be from a leader or otherwise. I find it interesting that often, though potentially not always, um, fire associated with God in the Bible is in some sense, controlled. There's the smoking fire pot. There's fire raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. There's the fire and the knife of the sacrifices. There's the pillars of cloud and fire. God's fire is seemingly direct and controlled when the fire associated with sinful man is absolutely out of control and can burn down entire communities of people. Uh, with misplaced or sinful words that curse others. I find that pretty interesting. And obviously uh, an application of this is I'm sure you've seen this uh, in Jeff and Alistair in, in your ministries, especially you, Jeff, but you know, uh, 
a, a word spoken here and there can absolutely travel through a body quickly and do a lot of damage before the pastor even knows what's happened. <laughs> that's just how that's, fire that never, works. That never, that never happens. I've never. Oh, okay. I good. I'm wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> Not in my church. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. That comment you make about the relationship between fire and the speech of the Lord, I think, is one that we encounter on many occasions. And it's also not just about the Lord's speech, which is compared to a consuming fire in places like Isaiah 30, verse 27. It's also, the speech of the prophet you can think about the way that Isaiah's tongue is touched with a live coal to purify his lips for future witness. We might think about the way that. Um, Jeremiah describes um, fire within his bones that's being held in there as he's not speaking the word of the Lord. And the Lord tells Jeremiah that he has made his words on Jeremiah's mouth like fire in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14, or in Revelation 11, fire proceeds from the mouths of the prophetic witnesses. So there is a sort of fire set alight by heaven. You can think most particularly of the way that tongues of flame descend upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost and the tongue, the many tongues with which they speak, it's the same word. And there's a connection between the two. The Lord has set the tongues of his people ablaze, but that setting ablaze of the tongue can also occur from below. And the flames of hell are ones that burn through whole communities like a forester's Brian described the church can be thought of as a forest, be done by careless speech, by um, wayward words is immense. And the ways in which speech is discussed in scripture is often particularizing. So it's cursing, spreading of rumors, angry outbursts, lies, falsehoods, deceptions. Think about boasting or flattery, coarse speech, blasphemy, and in all these sorts of ways, the tongue can spread its corruption and destruction. And often from one tongue to another, it's not just one tongue doing all of this by itself. It's the way that tongues follow each other. And once one tongue has started, all tongues are set wagging. And that danger, I think, is one that any leader of a Christian community or a community in general should be very well aware of. And on the other hand, that inflamed tongue is one that can do immense, can achieve very powerful things. So think about Peter on the day of Pentecost, his words cut to the heart of people, or the ways in which the mouths of the prophets in Revelation 11, they can burn their opponents. There is a power to the tongue that is incendiary, but it's not always one that's used for evil. It can also be one that's used for good as that tongue is set aflame from heaven. Um, but here, James's concern is with the way that the tongue can be set aflame by hell. And we must consider here, I think, the way that the power of evil within the world was first wielded through words and the temptation of the serpent, the way that the serpent was able to twist things to through his words, lead to mistaken understandings of God's character and through those to win over even Adam to his lies. 
think, for instance, of the way that the serpent in his initial temptation just throws that insinuation that God is not good, that he does not want his creatures to enjoy good gifts. And that is not effectively answered, but it's a, a cunning twist of words. Has God said, you must not eat of every tree of the garden? The impression is that God is fundamentally withholding. And again and again, we encounter this power in words, how carefully chosen words, words in season, um, can be used for immense good or evil. And with that, the fact that since tongues can be set alight by hell and tongues can be set alight from the heavens, this is a place where we meet the fundamental conflict between good and evil on the tongues, on our tongues and on the tongues of those who um, hear us and speak as a result. It's not conflict in this passage, but there is something uh, interesting to me that he starts with. He starts with a judgment and then he says, uh, we all stumble in many ways, right? There's kind of this understanding that his hearers and those who are going to teach and James himself uh, is a sinner. We all stumble in many ways. Um, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's perfect, okay, able to bridle the whole body. So that's something to discuss. But uh, again, throughout later at the end of this a little section, you know, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Or can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. But I thought we just said that we all stumble in many ways and controlling the tongue is so difficult. Um, there's, <laughs> I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Um, that there's this understanding of almost not being able to fully control the tongue. Perhaps that's a question that we can ask about verse two. Uh, but then later you have, well, a, a fig tree doesn't produce olives. Neither does a salt pond yield fresh water. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at there? That seeming conflict. Oh, yeah, I do. Um, and it, it seems like an unrelenting negative view of the tongue, uh, which can't be tamed at all. Uh, I, I think uh, I think this language is, um, well, it's categorical, and it seems to admit of no exception. But I, I do think this is part of James's rhetoric uh, to to shake them up a bit, to uh, cause them to think about what they're doing. I don't know that we can take these statements literally. I, I do think if you go back to verse two, um, the, the perfect man, I think is best translated as a mature man. Teleos is used throughout James, especially in the early parts to, to indicate maturity. So those who are, uh, are steadfast and faithful under trial end up gaining some maturity. Um, and so again, here, a mature man is someone who's able to bridle uh, the body, someone who's able to lead the church. Um, I don't think, I don't think what follows is him saying, well, that's just not possible because, because the tongue is just completely uncontrollable. But it, it, it does appear like in the community that James is addressing, it's almost like that because James is very concerned about the direction that these leaders, these brothers are leading the congregation into uh, aggressive, violent, 
uh, zealotry. And so that's why this is necessary. I, I, if, you're, if you're just reading this like in a modern American suburban context, although it certainly has application to that, this kind of language seems overblown. But if we are dealing with a community that is being incited by the speech of these brothers and leaders to violence, to aggressive retribution against their enemies, um, then this kind of language makes sense. Uh, it is, you know, he's, he's grabbing them by the lapels and shaking them pretty hard. Uh, that that's, that's the way I read this. Now, Alistair may have a different way of reading it, but I, I think that for me at least makes sense of this kind of unqualified rhetoric about the tongue. My impression would be just that it's referring to the inability of us as creatures to fully control our tongues and our words that proceed from them. Um, and so there's a sense here of James's recognition of the insufficiency of us as creatures. And I here I'm reminded of the way that Paul describes the ministry of the, the task of ministers and who is sufficient for these things. So on one hand, you're a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. And then it goes on to say we're not sufficient in ourselves. The sufficiency comes from God. And so the faithful leader should realize he can't control his tongue completely. Uh, there's always going to be times when he says something rashly, when he utters something in foolishness that he must repent of. And no one is perfect in this regard. And yet um, that should drive the faithful leader to greater dependence upon the Lord, knowing that he can't control his words. What happens when his words go out and the things that will happen with them, how they will be misused. Because often the things that we say are, are not wrong in themselves, but they're misused by people or used against us. And that sense of not being able to control our tongues, not being able to control our words, but depending upon the Lord, I think is an aspect that um, many leaders will have to return to on many occasions because they recognize they're just not sufficient for it by themselves. And here I, I'm also minded of the way that there is a great difference between the fact that all human words, once they've been uttered, they're alienated from us and they go out into the world and they can do their things and other people can do their things with our words. God alone is not alienated from the word that he has uttered. God alone can speak and have that word accomplish what he, exactly what he wants it to do. But yet as creatures, the word, our words are alienated from us. They go out and they do things that we'd never intended for them to do. And here, I think we're just drawn into greater dependence upon the Lord who can control the uncontrollable winds of words and the fires that they can start, even unwittingly. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, another thought here also about this kind of language, uh, especially in verses 9 through 12, is it, it, it will have the effect of causing the hearer, the brother, the leader, to examine himself, his motivations, his heart, uh, his attitude, because of the way this is phrased, uh, how can we do these things? How can from the same mouth come blessing and cursing? 
So, uh, we, you know, where is this cursing coming from? Uh, is you, are you a fresh, are you a freshwater well? Are you a saltwater well? Are you a tree that bears olives or figs? A salt pond? You know, all those, all these things cause will cause the hearer to think, okay, well, what am I? Uh, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? What's my motivation? Uh, who, who am I? Am I one of these unstable, double-minded men? Go back to chapter one. So remember, James um, exposes their double-mindedness. They're being unstable in all their ways. That word in the Greek, unstable, is the same word used here at the end or in the middle of chapter eight. The tongue is a unstable evil, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. So, hmm, wh who am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? What's, what's my motivation? Where's my heart? I think that's one of the effects of reading this and applying it to ourselves. It's incredibly sobering in light of his original warning. Not many of you should become teachers. This is what involves. These are the sorts of realities that you're, and you're going to be dealing with. These are the sorts of judgments that you'll be facing. These are the ways that you need to consider yourself. Another thing that I've been thinking about lately in dialogue with East that you've just written for a forthcoming conversation on Theopolis, um, Jeff, is about the way that James uses underlying clusters of imagery. And so throughout the book, there's this recurring theme of sowing and reaping. And that helps people to think about the relationship between natures and the things that they produce, about the relationship between actions and their long-term consequences, sowing and reaping, and about the need for dependence upon the gifts of rain and sun in the same way the dependence upon the gifts of God, who gives good gifts to his children. And those things provide a very powerful foil against which to see the negative power of the tongue. The tongue is something that can be like a forest fire, while sowing and reaping is a very gradual, it's a powerful process. It's a very gradual and steady and slow process. But the fiery words of the angry person can burn down in a few minutes what took years to build. And in the same way, you can think about the poison that can blight a whole crop or the salt water that proceeds from a well from which you expected fresh water. That can salinate the whole soil in a way that destroys its crop-bearing capacity. And in many churches, I think we've experienced this, the way in which someone said something that they did not consider, or someone said something in anger, um, in a relationship, when someone, as at a moment of heated antagonism, they say something that is just cruel, and the other person never views that relationship in the same way again. Those words can't be recalled. The damage has been done. And many years of work in reclaiming and rebuilding that relationship have to be undertaken if the damage is going to be rectified. Chapter 3, verse 9, with it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people, uh, referring to the tongue, we're made in the life From the same mouth come blessing and cursings. My brother, these things, brothers, these things ought not to be so. Um, mm -hmm. I think we need to understand what he's talking about here, because this doesn't imply that we can't have any kind of speech that would judge, that would uh, 
be, uh, you know, speaking truth to power, so to speak, because James is going to do that. I mean, in chapter five, he's going to utter some pretty serious judgments against uh, the rich that are oppressing them. You know, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, is he cursing them? I don't think so. I think this is prophetic judgment uh, in order to encourage them to wait for God to act. So although for some people it can seem counterintuitive, one powerful way in which we bless our enemies is by asking God to judge them. Okay? When God judges someone, it may lead to a person's death and destruction, but God also saves through judgment. In fact, the Lord always saves through judgment. So praying that the Lord would judge our enemies in righteousness is not to curse them, but to ask God to administer his promised justice, and that would be at his discretion, either removing them or converting them. So there's like a world of difference between cursing someone and petitioning God in prayer to judge them in righteousness. So we have models of those kinds of prayers in the Psalms. Uh, we've we've talked about that in previous podcasts, Trevor Lawrence's uh, new book, and he's got a couple of articles recently on this, very helpful. Uh, we call these the imprecatory Psalms, but it's really not the best way to classify them. And imprecation is a curse, but in these Psalms, we're not given words to use for cursing. We're rather pleading with God to act. And we're pleading with God to, to uh, fulfill his promise of of uh, acting in justice and righteousness. And so I just think that it's helpful to say that here so that we don't get the idea somehow that James is leaving us powerless, uh, speechless in the face of evil and oppression, where we can't say anything except for, you know, nice things. Let's put it that way. As we've gone through the book to this point, a common theme that James has been returning to is inconsistency and doubleness and the tongue is characterized by just this the same tongue bearing god's name in worship can also be used for foul language and hateful speech the tongue is that which is the opening of the mouth and the mouth is that which reveals the character of that from which it um, comes forth from which things come forth so the spring is a good imagery for the mouth and it's a common image that is used within the wisdom literature, the mouth as the source of waters, waters springing up from the heart. And that in inconsistency or the doubleness is something that he's discussed in relationship to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is faithful and sure and true. There is no shadow of changing or turning with God. There's no inconsistency with him. Whereas um, we can be unfaithful and constant we can shift with the tides the lord gives every good and perfect gift the lord is pure and holy and that contrast i think is one that has been an underlying one for james that again is coming to the surface here thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, 
and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.